please stand if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. didn't yell at you. <laughs> Today's scripture reading is from uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Please read the verse with me. You shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. A lot of uh, standing up and sitting down and standing up again and sitting down. I apologize if you have bad knees or a bad back, um, but that's part of what we do at uh, Grace Sacramento. We call it liturgy, and liturgy really means, uh, literally means the work of the people. And so we're asking you to do a lot. We're asking you to engage with us. We're asking you to, to be a part, that this isn't just what happens from the front, but it happens uh, wherever you may be sitting, uh, and we get to participate in liturgy together. Uh, thankful to be here. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. And again, I, I mentioned one of the, there is another. Uh, there's two of us, uh, but I'm the only one today. But uh, thankful that we get to worship together like this again. Uh, I'm looking for my sermon. There we go. It was somewhere. Uh, we are in the seventh word this morning, which means that there have been six that have come before and that there are three still yet to come after today. If you're just joining us, you may have guessed it. We are in a series in the Ten Commandments. In Latin, uh, the word decalogue, which is often a word used to describe the Ten Commandments, literally means ten words. Each commandment, a new word. It's fascinating. There are 613 Old Testament laws summarized beautifully into these ten commandments. And these ten, Jesus summarizes to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I love how author Jen Wilkin categorizes the Ten Commandments. She says that all ten deal with the subject of honor. The concept of honor has been with us since the first word, and it endures through the last. The Ten Commandments deal with matters of, she says, heavenly submission, earthly submission, and mutual submission. In that order. So if we use that same thought, today's commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, might be better understood, honor the covenant of marriage. But before you start tuning me out and say this one is one of those passages that doesn't apply to me because you haven't tied the knot or you're just out of a relationship or you think you're too young. Some of you might be saying, I don't even know what that word means. Or maybe you think you're too old, that I may be way past that sort of thinking and temptation. Whatever the reason and whatever the stage of life you find yourself, there is good reason why the seventh word is included in the list of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. 
As I mentioned, there are something like 613 laws in the Old Testament. These are laws that God gave to Israel to follow. And so as a sort of trivia, do you know how many laws there are in the United States? Like I said, works of the people, which means you guys can shout back. <laughs> That's the best answer. Uh, too many to count. Believe it or not, there are so many laws that no one really knows how many laws there are. No one really knows. It has been accumulating the number of laws over the last 200 plus years of the United States history. I did some research, guys. Think of it this way. There are about 20,000 laws just governing the use and ownership of guns. It's a lot. I read that in a typical year, there are about 125 new laws that are passed every year. Now, I may need to ask the experts. I know there are some who work in government here, those who work for different uh, congressmen and women. But that's what I hear, that there are about 125 or about 90 or so bills that are passed each year out of somewhere between 3,000 to 4,000 bills that are introduced. It's crazy. I live in this country. <laughs> And why do I share this? I think it's critical to our understanding of the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments. Because there are so many, many laws, the job, I think, of every lawyer, and again, I apologize if you are a lawyer. I'm, not, I'm just totally kidding. Whether prosecuting or defending is to use the law for their benefit. There's always some loophole. And with that many laws, there's some sort of contradiction that will happen at some point between the laws. And strangely enough, what's true for those in the judicial system is also true for us. We do what we can to make the law work for us. We find some loophole or some contradiction, or some ambiguity in the law to work in our favor. We'll look at the law, and because it seems more like a gray area, we may or may not do it. It doesn't say not to do it, nor does it say that we should. And so I will interpret the law in a matter, in a manner that best benefits me. Let me share a story with you, and a story that Jesus gave to an expert in the law who had questions of his own, asked Jesus, teacher, what must I do? Again, this is in Luke 10. A teacher of the law comes to Jesus and says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And how does Jesus respond? He responds always in a question, and he asks in return, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the expert replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, 
and love your neighbor as yourself. And then listen to this exchange. In Luke 10, 28, Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the expert in the law says he wanted to justify himself. And so he asks of Jesus, who is my neighbor? You may be familiar with that story. But again, this man, this expert in the law, comes to Jesus wishing to justify himself. Asks this question, who then is my neighbor? He was asking, how many hours do I need to work before I can punch out? What is the least amount of work required of me to get the job done? Which classes can I miss and still get a good grade in the class? What is the bare minimum I need to do and come out with a decent grade in this class? Do I need to study for all the material or are there certain sections I can skip to do well on my midterm? What I've realized about the Ten Commandments and about the laws of the United States, I think, it's how I view them. It's about perspective. It's about how I interpret them. When I look at the two, I think there's, a quite, a, there's quite a difference between the two, and again, there's quite a difference between how we interpret the scriptures and interpret the laws of the land that make it work for us or, or not. In other words, I think the same can be said of a job description, for example. When I look at a job description of a certain job I want to take, do I look at the job description or do I look at the boss who I want to please or the job that I want to do well in? When I think about good parenting, maybe as a kid, and look at some of those laws that my parents give, do I do them because I love my parents? or because I'm trying to figure out what I should do and what I shouldn't. It's about the heart. You see, what this man was essentially looking for as an answer to his question, the Old Testament law had such things like expelling the leper from the community, stoning a woman caught in adultery, purging the unclean from the clean. There were hundreds of laws, extra laws, on top of the 613 that the Pharisees and the leaders of the law, the teachers of the law, again, created. And so it was to be expected, again, according to the Mosaic law, yes, love your neighbor, especially the Jewish friends, love the holy priests, and love those who are clean. The lawyer realizes that the only way to possibly fulfill the law's demand is to limit it. The expert in the religious law should have acknowledged his inability to keep these commands and asked Jesus what he should do. Instead, the Bible tells us wishing to justify himself, to declare himself righteous, is by limiting the demand of the law and then showing that he has fulfilled that limited demand. And how often do we do this with the law? And how often do we look at the Ten Commandments and say, I did not do that one, and I did not do that one, and I struggle a little bit with this other one. 
And we look at the Ten Commandments as a way of justifying ourselves. And maybe not you, but I know I do. We look at the law and say, well, I've never committed adultery. I've never killed anyone. I must be a pretty good person. How does this apply to me? Does it apply to us? Does it pertain to any of us who are not and committed to the covenants of marriage? Well, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, broadens the scope of this seventh word. Let me read that for us. In Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said, and the first one he lists, he says, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's pretty convicting, I think. What Jesus does in the New Testament is he blurs the lines between practice and thoughts. Jesus blurs the lines between what we do and what we think about. What Jesus does is he blurs the line between what we do and what we think about doing. And he seems to equate the two and say that one is as much a violation of the Ten Commandments as the other. So the question for us is, what is Jesus saying? What is Jesus saying to us? Three very simple points. Number one, I think what Jesus seems to be saying and broadening the scope of what the Old Testament law says is that adultery is an issue of the heart. Two monks, one old and one young, were traveling with one another from one monastery to another, and they were, they were celibate. They were not even allowed to gaze at other women. And after a long walk, they came to a river which they had to cross. The river was flooded, and there was no way they would get across the river without getting wet. But there was also a lady there at the banks of the river wanting to cross. And she was weeping because she was afraid to cross on her own. The monks decided to cross the river by walking through the relatively shallow part of the river. And since the lady also needed to get to the other bank, the older monk, without much ado, carried her on his shoulders. And soon they reached the other bank where he set her down. The lady went her way, and the two monks continued their walk in silence. The other monk was really upset, finding the other monk's act disturbing. And as per their injunctions, they were not allowed to look at the woman, let alone touch a woman. And yet the other monk carried her on his shoulders and went all the way across the river. After a few hours, the confused monk couldn't stand the thought of what had happened, with, which uh, kept filling his mind. And so he began to berate the other monk. He said, we are not allowed to look at other women, not touch them, but you carried that woman across the river. 
Which woman? replied the older monk. The woman you carried on your shoulders across the river. And the older monk paused, and with a big smile on his lips, he said, I put her down when I crossed the river, and you, you're still carrying her. You know, I think it illustrates the point perfectly that, again, these issues are an issue of the heart. We can gouge out our eyes. We can cut off our hands. We can do all sorts of things to mutilate ourselves, but it's an issue of the heart. Friends, this command is one of the most difficult to keep. Not because we have acted on our desires. Not because we have acted out on our passions. And certainly not because we have acted out on our temptations, but because no one is able to keep in check what's actually happening in our hearts. Except God alone. Friends, no one knows your thoughts. No one can read your mind. No one knows what's going on inside that brain of yours except you and God. And I think that's the reason why this particular commandment is so hard to keep because it's an accountability between you and God. God, you know my thoughts. God, you know my anxious heart. It is one of the most difficult because we can keep things hidden in our hearts, in the recesses of our hearts, that no one will ever be able to read. Ever. If you're like me, we hardly ever act out on our desires like that. Not like this. If I were to interpret the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, I might add that he broadens the scope of the command found in the Old Testament of faithfulness to our marriage vows because every heart, no matter how young and no matter how old, married or not, woman or man, child or adult, has difficulty keeping the heart in check. I'm fearful that Someday, some way, that technology, with the ever-increasing technology that's out there, you might be able to see into my heart. <laughs> I fear that. When I think about you, I think about great things about you all. But what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling... What Jesus does is he broadens the scope. That's not only men who struggle with this, it's all sorts of people. Young or old, because it's an issue of the heart. And every person who has a heart struggles with lust of power, lust of greed, lust of pride. There are all sorts of lusts. The list is endless. Yes, Jesus uses this word lust, particularly to describe sexual desire, but anything or passion that seems to uncontrollably drive us is lust. The seventh word speaks to more than just those of us who are married, but to all who are tempted to lust. Lust is the worst of all sins in that it promises you everything. 
but it delivers on nothing. The more you lust, the less satisfying it becomes. If you can go all the way back to the first man and the first women in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, and as Satan is there trying to deceive them both, he deceives them with lust. Again, quoting Jen Wilkin in her book, 10 Words to Live By, she says, It is Eve gazing at forbidden fruit, finding it desirable, and consuming it. And what Jesus identifies at the root of adultery is the very thing that lies at the root of every adulterated act. The lust of the eyes is a disordered desire, one that chooses to fix its gaze, its yearnings, its grasp on that which God has forbidden. How many of us even as a kid, have wanted something that somebody else had that wasn't yours. It is terribly humbling and terribly sobering because what I think as a quick check, I've never done that, becomes a mirror that I look at into my own heart. And just as the prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all else and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Friends, it's an issue of the heart. Number two. Secondly, Jesus seems to say that adultery or lust, for that matter, is a distorted view of each other as image bearers of God. Just like the previous words, do not murder, the same can be said about adultery. We saw with the sixth word that anger and contempt created the ecosystem murder by devaluing another image bearer. Adultery, too, is an outward sinful act that begins with the devaluing of another. By way of application, Jesus is not against the pleasures of marriage. It is the Father's good gift. Lust itself, though, is an act of contempt, reducing someone to a source of gratification and nothing more. In the sixth word, prohibited regarding our neighbor as expendable, the seventh prohibits regarding our neighbor as consumable. Lust is about consumption and vulgarity, the acquisition of pleasure in the short term, the thin appearance of love. The joining of what God has not joined. Wilkins says, we do not consume those we love. We treasure and protect them as image bearers. Thus the root of sin of adultery chooses a person it is willing to treat with contempt. Lust devalues its object so that the act of adultery becomes the next logical step. We as Christians believe that every life has worth because we've been made in the image of God. And when Jesus came to earth, he didn't just model how to treat people well. He revealed what God would do when face to face with his own creation, those stamped with the image of God on their soul. 
Adultery is the devaluing of a person's worth, the devaluing of a person's image as a, a God-bearer. Number three, God has chosen marriage as the earthly expression of God's love. God has chosen marriage to be the earthly embodiment of how he loves us. Now think about it there. Um, when we think about uh, images in the Old Testament, there are all sorts of images to describe Israel, unfaithful, and God, the one who is faithful. We think about Jesus as the bridegroom and we, the church, as his bride. And what God does is that he uses the institution of marriage to show how much he loves us, how much he cares for and adores his bride. He remains faithful even when we have been unfaithful to him. The good news, before you walk away thinking, what a doom and gloom message, thinking of ourselves as, uh, as unworthy, the, it's quite the opposite when we read this, is that God honors marriage. God honors an ordered love. God honors life and the lives of those who bear the image of God. Before you walk away thinking of uh, doom and gloom, Jesus, Jesus comes to us as the faithfulness of God. Jesus as the covenant keeper. Jesus as the faithful one in marriage. Jesus as the perfect bridegroom, the one who cares for and protects and values, and loves, and shepherds, and dies for his bride. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the one who is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent for him. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus. What Jesus does for us is he, he, he exemplifies and models it perfectly. The one who loves his bride. The one who is faithful. 